That's when we started saying everyone should get some college experience. That's when the community college sector just boomed enormously. That's when you had plenty of colleges like normal colleges becoming baccalaureate grant institutions, colleges becoming universities. I mean, BA institutions offering master's degrees. I and mean, that was a huge boom time. And now it doesn't apply because we built higher ed for a time that no longer exists. We are in a different economic situation. That's part of the reason why we're struggling right now. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. All right, well, welcome everyone. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here on behalf of the Digital to Learn podcast. We began as a podcast two years ago, and since then it's really taken off. And we started that podcast with the intention of providing professional development for ourselves and for the faculty of Indiana Western University. But since the beginning, as our guests have represented universities across the globe, we've grown in scope. And with each episode each week, we've grown in listeners as well. So we're really excited to be able to expand and offer some new opportunities for you to engage with digital to learn beyond the podcast. One of those opportunities is in a webinar format. And so we thought, let's do three webinars with guests who were popular among our listeners and who represented topics that are important to us and are important to the future of higher ed. And the first person that we thought to ask was Brian Alexander. One, because he's fun. <laughs> and two, because he's a futurist. So oftentimes in our podcast, we focus on evidence-based practices and teaching and learning. But with Brian, we made a shift and we wanted to invite someone to the podcast who had something to say about the future of higher ed. And folks are listening to what Brian has to say and we want to too. So we wanted to bring him back and he asked us, okay, I'll do the webinar, but what do you want me to speak on? And we said, we have a feeling you know what you want to speak on. So we're leaving this completely open, kind of scary, right? For him to share with us his work on the future of higher ed. He just shared actually that he had a book released last month. He has another one coming this winter. So there's lots to learn from Brian today. Thank you for being here. And I'm going to turn it over to the scholar and futurist, Brian Alexander. Well, thank you so much. It's great to be back here again. I especially appreciate, Tiffany, the very, very kind remarks you made about uh, introducing me. You've given me a lot to live up to. Now I have to be more fun than usual, and I have to make sure that I can cause as much of a problem as possible. So I'll keep all that in mind. Hello to everyone who is joining us now live, and hello to everyone who hears this in the future, which is where I spend most of my time. In fact, one of the worst movies of all time, Ed Wood's classic, Plan 9 from Outer Space begins with this line, we are all of us interested in the future because that is where we will be spending the rest of our lives. Which is an amazing kind of Zen statement that in some ways makes sense. And that is actually what I do and what I work on. So what I'd like to do right now is take you through some of where I see the future headed. And as I go, I would love to hear from each of you. I don't want to just hurl a whole bunch of stuff at you and then say, done, any questions. What I'd like for you to do is to think about the different points and think about how they apply to you. 
how they might change your future in whatever position you might have as a faculty member, as a university president, as a student, a librarian, a technologist, whatever your role is. And then to think about if these trends are accurate. Uh, if you find them misplaced, or if you find countervailing trends that we haven't talked about, or if they're topics that you think are especially important, please just let me know. And I'd really like to hear from you. I mean, if I did want to hear from you, I could just talk to myself, put a recording up and be done. So let me just quickly hit share and share a little bit of slides in your direction. This is a lot of material, though. So I'm going to hit highlights, and I'm going to cross over a few things just to make sure that we get the most important stuff. And I'm happy to go back and return to any other position that's come up. I'm a futurist. That means I spend most of my time trying to help people think in a more informed, more creative, and more strategic way about the future. Now, doing this in 2022 is a bit more difficult, a bit more challenging, simply because we have so much that's going on that is in many ways frightening. We're still dealing with the COVID pandemic, which has had a terrible cost humanity as a whole, and it's hit higher education pretty badly. And we're also dealing with the threat of global war, not to mention all kinds of other threats. So as I speak, I am going to try to be as fun and inspiring as possible, but at the same time, we're going to cover a lot of challenging stuff. So be aware that we have a total mix here. As a futurist, people often think of different ways of what this work actually means. People think that I imagine science fiction or that I'm a cultist, a fortune teller. What we really do is do a lot of research into what's happening now and try to extend that into the future. So, in fact, let me just skip a couple of things ahead of time and let me just tell you what we're looking at. So, first of all, I'd like to identify trends. A trend is a force, an action, something happening in the present day that we can understand, that we can study, that we can back up with evidence, and then we can explore how it would play out in the future. Think about it as finding a video, and we're able to pause it and see what it looks like and how it works, and then we're going to hit play, and then we're going to hit fast forward and see what happens next. So let me hit some of the major trends, and I like to begin the biggest possible picture. In this case, it's global higher education. And what's interesting is we have two opposite things happening at the same time. So one of the things that's going on with global higher education is increased globalization of higher ed. And I don't mean that in the cheesy way where people say globalization, they don't really have any content. What I mean is very specific. We were, until recently, seeing more and more students cross international boundaries to study. We're seeing more faculty doing more collaboration on an international basis and staff as well collaborating with colleagues in other countries. And there are a lot of drivers behind this, some political, some institutional, some economic. But the fact is that a lot of higher education in the world for about a generation was pushing hard on this global idea. And you can imagine setting foot on any campus, you know, physical foot or a virtual foot, and being able to experience multiple languages, multiple ethnicities, multiple ways of approaching the world. And that individual campus would be a kind of super node of the world as a whole. So we had that driver, that major trend working along. At the same time, that elicited the opposite, what I've nicknamed national college. And this is the idea that a college or university should focus on supporting and addressing its locality. And the locality can be a nation, it can be a region, it can be a city, it can be a population. But those are the people who should be focused on for teaching. 
and they should be served. And also their traditions, their ways of knowing, their concerns should be uppermost in curricula. Research should follow this as well. And we could find many examples of this. And again, some of the backing behind it is political, some of it is cultural, some of it's economic, but these two forces really collide. And we've seen a lot of friction in different ways, if you know where to look. For example, a lot of major research universities around the world have pushed to making English the language of presentation and a language of instruction. So that if you travel across boundaries, we'll pick the most, you know, the lingua franca of our time, English to speak in. Well, we've had some pushback. We've seen this in South Africa. We've seen this in Holland. We've seen this in Italy, where faculty, staff, students, politicians have said, no, 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 if you're going to come to our country, you're going to have to learn the language in order to study and do research in it. I would expect to see more of this friction happening as we move forward. And it plays out in some interesting ways. There are a few accidents that inflect this. So to begin with, the pandemic really, really pushed down on internationalization. And we've seen this unevenly played out in some countries. Australia hit the worst, where they lost something like one third of their student population. Not to death, but because Australia spent a lot of its capacity in serving students from East Asia. We saw as well the United States losing quite a few students. And on top of that, the U.S. suffered from perceptions of our country being riddled with anti-immigration sentiment, as well as being subject to a lot of gun violence. So the U.S. have a major loss in international students. It's an open question how that's going to proceed moving forward. On top of that, we're seeing Russia's war in Ukraine having a similar impact. That is, we're seeing a lot of academics taking stands against Russia, and that can include deciding not to collaborate with Russian researchers, not to partner with Russian institutions, not to accept Russian students. And the reverse is probably happening as well, which is not a, as great an extent. Take a look to see what other kinds of incidents will play out along these lines. Now, a second driver of change, a second trend that we need to think about is one of the most established tools in the futurist toolbox. And that has to do with population and demographics. The great thing about population is that we study population really closely. Professional demographers and interestingly, the insurance industry have assembled a huge amount of data and we can really do a good job of projecting outward how populations might change. And one of the things that's happening now is actually extraordinary, literally unprecedented. What we're experiencing is what demographers kind of blandly call the demographic transition. But the short version is we're producing fewer children and we're living longer. Let me give you a visual display of this. What a lot of the developing world looks like and also what most of humanity has looked like up until about 1900. And with a glance, you can see that this is a society, so there are more toddlers than teenagers, more teenagers than people in their 20s, and so on. And you have a very small number of people over 65. Now, this again, like I said, is what most of human history looked like until recently. Recently looks like this, where we take that pyramid, we flip it upside down. Now, this is Germany a couple of years ago, and you can see that there are more people in their 20s than teenagers, more people in their 50s than in their 20s. The number of seniors is actually pretty huge. We know thoroughly why this has happened. A few things have to occur to a society for this to, to take place. One is there has to be an improvement in medical science. Another is there has to be an improvement in public health. On top of that, things have to happen to the status of women. Women have to have more access to careers more access to education, more access to some reproductive capacity. If you have all of that, which we can call modernization or modernity, then you get this reverse pyramid 
then you get fewer and fewer children and more and more seniors. And this plays out around the world. I can show you example after example. In the U.S., it's pretty interesting. Before I get to that, let me just show you this. It's playing out in the developed world. And if you hit fast forward on our video, then you're going to have a smaller population over time. But you can take a look here at Europe, most of Asia, most of the United States, and countries dotted throughout you know, parts of South America. And you can see they are have already crossed that curve, that they're in the stage of uh, producing fewer and fewer kids. In fact, if you take a look at some countries that are in the news right now, some of the Baltic republics, Belarus, Ukraine, Romania, you can see that those are actually really shrinking right now. Well, let's zoom in a little bit. Look at the countries that are still producing kids at scale. And you can see that most of them are located in Central Africa. And some of them are in the Middle East and a couple in East Asia. If you're looking ahead to the 21st century, this is in many ways where the future is in terms of population. And if you're thinking about higher education, why does this matter for the future of colleges and universities? Well, one reason is because if we teach traditional age undergrads, people who are 18 years old when they start their post-secondary education, well, the pipeline for that population is narrowing and narrowing further. And we know it's not likely to change course because every country that has tried ways to try to reverse this whole demographic transition has failed miserably. If you want some entertainment, go to YouTube and look for the Danish government fertility campaign. The Danish government hired an ad agency to try and convince Danes to have more kids. It failed miserably, but the ads are really hilarious. But if you're thinking about recruiting students, it may be that we need to look not to Europe, but instead to Central Africa. And there's more to be said about this. I can come back to it if you like. In the United States, things are a little bit more uneven. If you look at the Northeast and Midwest, most of the South, you can see that producing fewer kids. And this has been occurring across these regions. In fact, the Midwest, especially the upper Midwest and most of the Northeast, have been losing population as a whole for a few years. And think about what this means for American higher ed. A supermajority of our colleges and universities are located in those states. Look at New England, you know, kind of the hub of American higher ed. States that are colored blue are still producing kids at scale, but most of those don't have a lot of children to begin with. The big exception here is Texas, which is now a kind of hub of fertility. And this is happening for a lot of reasons. And this happened before a lot of abortion legislation. It's mostly happening because you have a lot of immigration going into Texas, both from inside the United States and from outside. In the chat, Ruben Rubio mentioned it never occurred to him that many more people live in Nigeria than Germany. Yes. Nigeria is a huge, huge country, and again, still producing kids. And Germany, as you saw from that chart, is starting to shrink. You know, thinking about that kind of balance is a really important way of thinking about global higher education. Now, in the U.S., there are a few other changes, that some of which are well-known, some of which are not so well-known. One of them is that we are becoming more ethnically and racially diverse. Specifically, two things are happening. The white Caucasian population is producing fewer and fewer kids, and the Latino or Hispanic population is continuing to grow. It's the second largest population in the U.S. Uh, other populations are not having as much of a dynamic impact. Uh, the Asian population is growing, but still relatively small. The black population is pretty stable. Really big change here is this decrease in the white population, the rise in the Latino population. As you can see from this one map, plays out unevenly across the U.S. And this, of course, has impacts on everything from how we market colleges to our pedagogy, to our curriculum, tenure promotion, hiring review. I'm going to come back to this point in a bit, but I want to make sure that we have it on our table here.
Another issue is that the students who come to us are beginning to change in some ways that we don't fully account for. And you'll all be familiar with some of these, but I want to make sure these are all in front of us as we try to imagine the future of higher ed. One is that we still often think about the typical college student as being between 18 and 22 years old. The fact is the adult population has been growing throughout higher education for years. And depending on your metrics, it's maybe a quarter, maybe a third, maybe more of the student body. And we need to keep that in mind. And as our population ages out, I expect to see more and more colleges and universities expanding their reach to teach more and more adults, especially seniors. We're also seeing a growth in the first generation student population. That's a new one to you. Let me just explain. We've maxed out the population of would-be students whose parents, whose family have some post-secondary experience. Now we're recruiting students whose parents, whose family don't have that experience. And those are students that take more work to support. Because if you think about it, if you enter a community college, a liberal arts college, a research university, you're entering a strange world, one that people outside of it are not fully prepared for with its own language, its own rituals, its own expectations, its own pathways. We can make fun of these differences, and some of them are comic. For example, City University of New York, people have this expression, to be cunified. And that means when you run into the bureaucracy and the bureaucracy messes you up. You know, you talk to three different people, you get three different answers, and people will say, ah, I've been cunified so badly. And it's funny, but it also reflects a reality. My own son went through the University of Vermont, just graduated. Both of his parents and his grandparents have a lot of college university experience. That's my job is to do that. And he kept running into problems that for me seemed obvious, but still were new to him. Think about teaching first generation students. Now, we also have a growing number of veterans because America continues to fight the longest war in our history. And veterans, of course, have special needs and requirements, and they also organize very well. On top of that, we have students with learning disabilities, and we know some reasons for that. We have more diagnostics. We also have improvements in neonatal intensive care units. Some reasons we're not quite sure about are being investigated. But if you wrap all these together, our student body is becoming not just more diverse, but more complicated, more challenging to teach. And that requires more resources. So we have to really keep an eye on this. Brad Royler mentions out that IWU has made several efforts in global cities of education, Australia, Latin America, Indonesia, Ethiopia. Most of those have run into major roadblocks because of national red tape that we could not manage. Difficulties in sorting out cost scale and the national instability in partners and governments. It seems that it is the practical realities that are really interfering with globalizing IWU. What are the trends that might impact these things? Uh, Bart, that's a great question. Great observation. So glad you mentioned this. The problems that you're describing are ones that I've heard from many, many countries. Now, most of them are not really surprising if we think about some of the countries that have huge bureaucracies or have political instability or a combination of these, not to mention bouts of corruption. Also, within Africa in particular, there's a huge push to expand its post-secondary sector. So I think we're going to see those nations try to make themselves more available and more accessible. I would watch for those two things. However, we're going to come back to this later. I don't think national corruption or political instability are going away. And we'll come back to that. Great point, Bart. So the students who come to our campuses, not only are they more challenging and more diverse in multiple ways, there are also fewer of them. And this is something which people really didn't catch on to until last year. But let me just give you a quick bit of explanation. Starting around 1980, we began to massively increase the number of students taking classes in American higher ed. And from about 1982 or so to 2012, 
that number just ballooned. We don't have a name for this period in history yet. We really should come up with one. Clay Shirky calls it a golden age for higher ed, and that's not bad. But the key thing is we massively expanded enrollment, and then it stopped. 2012, 2011, 2013 was the peak of higher education. And after that point, every year, in fact, every semester, enrollment has ticked down about 1% each year until the pandemic, and then it went down by 5% or more at the undergraduate level. Right now, we're maybe 20% down below where we were in 2011-12. And you can see here from this chart that this impacts different sectors of higher ed unevenly. Public two years, i.e. community colleges, have been hammered especially hard, which is strange in some ways, given their strong role in, in providing training for local economies. The private for-profit sector really collaborated, especially in the Obama administration. They may be coming back. But if you take a look at, say, public four years or private nonprofit four years, they're not doing great either. The key thing is these students exiting for profits and leaving community colleges, they're not coming back to the rest of us. They're just leaving. So if our goal was to increase the number of students in higher ed, we're failing at it badly. And the other problem with this, another reason why I'm mentioning this, is because the supermajority of institutions, I'm guessing IWU is included in this, depend on tuition, student fees, and room and board if you've got them for the majority of your budget. And if we have fewer students enrolled, you see the problem right away. Now, will this trend discontinue? I don't think so. Uh, it's possible we might have a rebound, but so far, a lot of the reasons that keep people out of high rate are still there or getting worse. Fear, for example, about student debt, which continues to grow. Fear of published prices, which continue to rise. Concerns about the quality of education, which appears in different ways. So keep an eye on this as well. Now, what students take in higher ed is also changing in some interesting ways. So. If you think about the classes students are taking, what I'm about to show you is not a complete surprise, but it's really important to have this in mind as we think about the future of higher ed. Short version is STEM plus business majors are growing and growing fast. The humanities and the arts are losing out. So if you take a look at this chart here, the top right are the fields that saw increases in granting of degrees from the second decade of the 21st century. And you can see a lot of them are not really surprising. Exercise science, computer science, nursing, health and medical. And the growth is actually huge. If you take a look at the bottom of the screen, you can find that you know these are growing by 20, 30, 40, 50 percent. I mean, a huge amount of growth, more than 50, 60, 70 percent. And if you look at the bottom left, these are fields that are dropping 20, 30 percent. Philosophy, English, languages other than English, humanities, religion, history. And I, I'm not saying this with any special degree of pride. My own PhD is in English. So this makes me very sad and angry. I want it to reverse. But the fact is there. Students are voting with their feet. And we can talk about the reasons. But keep this in mind when you think about things like who IWU is going to hire for the next faculty role. What happens when faculty retire? How often will those lines be closed out or they'll be replaced? It's possible that we'll see this start to shift around, but right now these curves seem pretty straightforward and pretty durable. Now, outside of higher ed, this is the hardest slide I'm gonna show you, I promise. One of the things that's happening is a change in economics. And before you get scared by this, I promise I'll explain it in English. One of the huge changes that has happened in our lifetime is that we have gone on the right side of this curve. So let me explain. This is a curve of income and wealth inequality. 
across four countries, including the U.S. And it follows a century. And we have to go back in time. We have to understand how we got to where we are. The vertical axis here represents inequality. The higher, the more unequal. The horizontal axis is time. So we look at 1910, and we can see that we were pretty good at inequality. You know, we're generating of it. But then from about 1914 to about 1960, inequality dropped and dropped steadily. And the reasons for this are really clear and obvious. We had two world wars that destroyed a lot of wealth. We had a global Great Depression, which did the same. And we also had a whole bunch of government policies and social movements which redistributed wealth. So the United Kingdom moving towards national health care, for example. In the United States, deal. So the result is from about 1950 to about 1980 or so, these countries are the least unequal we'd ever been in modern times. In that period, some great compression because it was that less unequal. That was also where something happened to us in higher ed. Starting in the early 1980s, income inequality started to come back. It rose, and it rose steadily. And right now, off the chart, it is at 1910, 1900 levels. In fact, a Swiss reinsurance company, Swiss Ray, referred to our time as the New Gilded Age. That's not like a Marxist outfit. That's you know serious investors talking. And why this matters to us, look back in that Great Compression part, that's when we last overhauled American higher ed. That's when we say we're going to have a federal department of education, and it's going to give out federal student loans. That's when we started saying everyone should get some college experience. That's when the community college sector just boomed enormously. That's when you had plenty of colleges, like normal colleges, becoming baccalaureate grant institutions, colleges becoming universities. I mean, BA institutions offering master's degrees. I mean, that was a huge boom time. And now it doesn't apply because we built higher ed for a time that no longer exists. We are in a different economic situation. And that's part of the reason why we're struggling right now. Now, one sign of that economics, one of the reasons for the rebirth of inequality has to do with financialization. That is the financial sector really grew. And this increased inequality because the financial sector really tends to aggregate wealth for the very top of the economic distribution. One sign of that in the higher ed is that the United States came up with a new idea that no other country has really followed, which is that we're going to fund higher education by student debt. And you can see from this graph, and some of you can see in your own life, that we massively ballooned the amount of debt we have. We are now actually about $1.7 trillion, an amount that is higher than any form of debt in the U.S. except for housing. It's bigger than car notes. It's bigger than credit card debt. It's continuing to grow. If the Biden administration got its act together and forgave a whole bunch of student debt right now, this would keep ballooning. And this, of course, has all kinds of impacts. You can overstate the impact. You can say, ah, you know, the Wall Street Journal, NPR, love to have stories about people with $100,000, $200,000, a million dollars in debt. I mean, the fact is the median amount is closer to 30000 But there are clear impacts. We've already seen impacts on housing and other capital purchases. People are less likely to buy a house or a car. They're also less likely to have children, which means there's a demographic side effect to this as well. So this is one thing to keep an eye on because not everyone talks about this in higher ed and dealing with it is something that we don't really have a good handle on right now. And this will continue to make higher education look terrifying to a growing number of people. Brian has given us so much to think about in terms of the future of higher education. Please come back next week because we're going to pause here 
and continue the conversation later. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.